All right, so today, uh, let me think now, July 19, 2022, uh, another entry into uh, Living Stronger Longer, Your Best Life After 40, uh, monologue version. So today I'm going to attempt to tackle a couple of different things, and maybe they should be separate into separate things. I'll look at it later if it becomes too much of a word salad, then I will... Um, talk about uh, maybe, or I might change it and do it separately. So I want to talk, one of the things I want to talk about is so-called functional training and why it, I'm going to say why it quote unquote works. Um, I'm going to talk about the appeal of it and an appeal of it that maybe you don't have in high intensity training and that maybe uh, we should look at. And connected to that because I think of things like functional training as some of those activities and things like CrossFit is, is sports. And of course, CrossFit is a bona fide sport. There are competitions and meets and people uh, that, that compete uh, and there are world championships and all that thing. So although it started out as a way apparently to get fit, I'll talk about that, it is become a bona fide sport. And as a sport, which I'll talk about the pros and cons of sports in general during this talk. Fair enough, it, it, it has injury rates, but so does many sports, as I'll come to tell you. So first of all, functional training. So those of us in the high intensity community will often, and I'm going to suggest with some validity, talk about how functional training doesn't make a lot of sense because the premise of it is that, for example, by doing certain things that emphasize balance, agility, and things of that, that somehow these will transfer over to day-to-day -day activities. And, and the challenge is that skill acquisition science shows that this is not the case, that if you want to become good at a specific activity, you need to practice that specific activity in order to get better at it. And it talks about, we talk often about what's called neutral transfer, positive transfer, and negative transfer. So for example, if you're doing an activity that bears no resemblance to another activity, then the transfer from one to the other will be neutral. It won't make any difference. If on the other hand, you do something that is similar to, but not quite the same. So the examples that are usually given is a batter swinging with a weighted bat or a golfer with a weighted club or people running uh, with various uh, apparatuses tied to them, uh, that this will have negative transfer because it's close to, but not, not the same. So it'll actually make it worse when you swing your bat without the weighted, uh, uh, you know, extra weight added to it or what have you. So, you know, examples that are often given is if you want to mess up a basketball player, uh, don't make the net a foot lower, make it an inch lower, or deflate the basketball a little bit. And these small differences will completely throw them off. And a positive transfer is, of course, when you are doing something that is as nearly identical as when you're going to be doing it in actual practice. And, and in professional sports, you're often seeing these types of things being done. And 
to some extent, you know, I, I think that, you know, why are they doing it? Well, because of a lot of other coaches do it, and that's the norm and whatnot. And of course, you're dealing with um, athletes at the professional level that are exceptional athletes. And some of them, I believe the term is called, um, not differentiators, I'm going to forget the actual term, but there are people who, who are able to do various things skillfully, even though they're very different. So they don't sort of fall into the same sort of skill acquisition rules that all of us do. But even for them, most of the time, it messes them up. Matter of fact, last night I was watching a movie called Hustle with Adam Sandler about a basketball player. And then and I couldn't, well, I couldn't believe it. All of the various drills and whatnot that they were showing them doing in the end for NBA and whatnot, which I just shook my head because they don't make sense. Now, if they don't make sense and, and we allege that they don't work and they're actually counterproductive, then why does that still happen a lot in uh, not only professional sports, but, you know, a growing trend in uh, regular fitness. And, and more often than not, people are getting you to use kettlebells or staying on one leg or uh, as you're doing different things and, and doing various things that are supposed to be functional. The idea being that you're going to build more functional muscles than you would otherwise. And I think part of the appeal is confidence, because as you get somebody to do something that has a level of difficulty in it, and they get better at it, they get a sense of accomplishment and they get greater confidence. Now, where I'm going to say that maybe this actually can help them in other activities is if they believe this, and if they go into other activities more confident, then that in itself may be, uh, may be beneficial to them. Now, sometimes you might say, well, somebody might challenge, say, if you go into something you don't know how to do it with confidence that hasn't been earned, you can hurt yourself. And fair enough. But the other thing is, if you go into something tentatively and fearfully, uh, then you can also get hurt. Whereas if you have a certain amount of letting go and feeling like you can do it, that can actually help. And I think just what people like progress, they like positive feedback. You want somebody to repeat a behavior, somebody or your pet or anybody, positive feedback. So as people get better at various activities, they feel like they're making progress and that in itself is addictive. Now, of course, part of the challenge with a lot of these things is that they are inherently dangerous. For example, lifting a weight on one leg or on an unstable surface or things like that do have a higher incidence of injury. And that people will argue, but I mean, simple physics will tell you, you know, loading your spine or other joints in an unstable environment is going to be more dangerous than doing it in a stable environment. And of course, you could, we could also make the point that there are no really such things as stabilizer muscles. There's just muscles and it doesn't carry over. But if you do get better at it, what happens is it can be so addictive that people really enjoy getting better at something, anything, whatever it is, even if it's just some uh, bizarre thing like flipping tires or, or pushing things like that as you're getting better at it and they have measurable progress 
that can be very addictive to the point that even when people do get hurt, they continue to do it because they're so addicted to that feeling of making progress. And part of this, I'm going to give credit to uh, Daniel Thompson, where he talked about, you know, I think the way he said it is, um, if, if you have something that you can measure that you're doing better, as opposed to, you know, when you're doing hit and, you know, after the early uh, gains and whatnot, and also the fact that very few people have the genetic potential to build excessively large muscles before very long, the sense of accomplishment is as far as measurable because people will get a sense of fulfillment from feeling like they got a really good workout. But then you're basically saying, well, you went up half a pound here and a pound there. And of course, if you can highlight to people that, hey, six months ago, you were doing this, now you're doing that, and it's that much better, then that is helpful Two, uh, but then sometimes using things like time static contraction, or even when people are not necessarily increasing the weights, but just getting better at inroading more effectively, it's just not as sexy, if you will, as doing, um, you know, where you're getting better at a specific skill. Now, of course, I'm going to come back and say functional training is really you know, if you're getting your muscles stronger, they're going to be more functional, i.e. if they are stronger and you're doing it in a safer manner, you're also going to be more functional if you're not getting hurt. But I can deny that the, the, the addictive nature of somebody improving a skill, any skill, even if it's a skill that they're never going to use in daily life, even if it's a skill that really doesn't transfer over anything else, still can give them confidence that's very addictive and i think that's part of the appeal so uh, stronger muscles are more functional not getting injured is more functional and then if you want to get functional at a specific thing as again daniel thompson's doing some videos if i'm understanding where he's coming from I i'm thinking you know if you if you need to chop wood you should practice chopping wood not doing a wood chopping exercise if you need to mow the lawn if you need to uh, you know whatever it is that you do if you need to practice a sport so again to go off onto the other thing and, and sorry just to finish that point and that really truly is functional training nothing to do with getting stronger not mixing the two together just if you want to get better at a certain function that you actually do use in daily life then practice that function. Watch YouTube videos on how to most effectively do that function, things like that, and practice the skill. Same principle as if you do happen to participate in a sport, um, just get as strong as you can in the gym using intelligent training, safe training that's not gonna hurt you, and then go out and practice your sport. So now going into sports in general, and I, I suspect the, you know, earlier I made another thing about cultural norms. So sports, our obsession with sports, uh, watching them, playing them, everything else is definitely a cultural norm. And I will concede that there are some positives to that. Um, teamwork, building character, 
all these various things are, are positive things. Obviously, recreation, uh, having fun, enjoying. But I think that it is, to some extent, overglorified, overdone, and the benefits are emphasized, whereas the downsides are almost ignored. Um, and, and, you know, so I'm just going to, I'm reading off the screen here. I found this thing about how frequently do sports injuries occur. So this refers to kids 14 and younger. And I was going to make this into a separate thing. It's a bit of a longer one, but kids 14 and younger, um, you know, we, we glorify it. We're happy when our kids play sports, it keeps them out of trouble, keeps them out of the mall. They're doing something that's good for them and adds to their fitness, all these various things. But uh, National Safe Kids Campaign, the American Academy of Pediatrics. So these are American stats. So the injury rates, more than three and a half million children ages 14 and younger get hurt annually playing sports or participating in recreational activities. Although death from sports injury is rare, the leading cause of death from a sports-related injury is a brain injury. Uh, sports and recreational activities contribute to approximately 21% of all traumatic brain injuries among American children. Almost 50% of injury, injuries, head injuries, sustained in sports or recreational activities occur during bicycling, skateboarding or skating incidents. So think about that next time you're seeing a YouTube video of, of kids doing amazing things on skateboarding. Maybe look at some of the fails because ask yourself before they got to that, how many kids hurt themselves? So more than 775,000 children age 14 and younger. So we're not even including here the kids from 14 to 19. And of course, all of us uh, older people who are also participating in sports. 775,000 children age 14 younger are treated in hospital emergency room for sports related injuries each year. I wonder how many children 14 and younger were hospitalized because of COVID. Anyways, little tangent. And we're getting all upset over that. But think about if there was an illness that came out that had 775,000 kids, 14 and younger, showing up in emergency rooms, you know, would we be scrambling to vaccinate them or somehow isolate them or have them wear different things? So playground sports uh, and bicycle-related injuries occur most often among children's age 5 and 14 years old. So many tangent, I see older people getting into bikes. Uh, I was going to do a whole separate thing on the growing popularity of a sport called pickleball, which again, a lot of fun, but the injury uh, potential there, particularly for older out of shape adults who are doing it because it's fun and hey, great way to get in shape. Uh, of course, highest rates of injury occur in sports that involve contact and collisions. Uh, more severe injuries occur during individual sports and recreational activities. So most of them, interestingly, 62% of sports-related injury occur during practice. So here's the stats by sport. This is from 2009. Uh, basketball, more than 175,000 kids. 
So again, I'm not going to repeat it's between five and 14 and they're treated in the hospital emergency room. So these are not just little things. They had to go to emergency. 170,000 baseball and softball, nearly 110,000 bicycling, more than 200,000 football, almost 215,000 ice hockey, more than 20,000. Of course, this American, I'm guessing that in Canada, there's a lot more kids playing hockey. Inline and roller skating, more than 47,000. Skateboarding, 66,000. Sledding or tobogganing, uh, 16,000. I'm thinking a lot of those are probably head injuries. Snow skiing or snowboarding, 25,000. Soccer, 88,000. Trampolines, 65,000. I thought, find that one interesting because I'm thinking there's probably a lot less kids on trampolines than they are and those other sports. So sports uh, have a downside that doesn't get talked about. As a matter of fact, you know, people think uh, to themselves, you know, my kids are playing sports, they get hurt. Well, that's part of the deal. Well, I, I'm not sure I'm all that okay with it because these injuries, if you hurt yourself as a kid, uh, bad enough to get to emergency room, those of us that have gray hair or less hair like I do right now will realize that those injuries you had were kids come back to haunt you in later life. I mean, we think while well, we heal and certainly children heal better than older adults, but it's never quite the same. So I kind of wonder because think of these stats and if I took away the word sports and I referred to an illness or a lifestyle uh, habit that wasn't as, uh, you know, culturally normed, accepted, then, you know, would we be shouting from the rooftops how harmful this is and, and how we need to do something about it and whatnot. And these are just kids, again, five to 14, not counting the kids that are older, not counting all the people that are playing sports all over the place that are getting hurt. So going back to the, my original part of this, with functional training and that how that turns into a sport in many cases and how many people are getting hurt. Interestingly, uh, some time ago, people from CrossFit may come back and say point to a court case that was done where uh, CrossFit as an organization, I may get the details wrong here, sued another organization, I forget which one, so I won't try to guess, who had said that sports fit, uh, CrossFit rather, was dangerous. And they won their case. But if you read, when I read the article about how they won their case, they won their case based on the idea that CrossFit was no more dangerous than other sports. Well, fair enough. I don't, whether that's true or not, to me, that's a fairly low standard based on the statistics that I just showed you um, that other sports in general get people hurt. And the fact that we accept that. So we focus on the benefits and tend to ignore the, the downsides of it. So, you know, uh, Doug McGuff, I've heard him use the term hidden graveyard. So we see kids who are, um, who are, uh, you know, or, or adults who have won championships, professional athletes who have multi-million dollar contracts and people with gold medals and things like that. But what we don't see uh, is all the kids that are getting hurt and injuries that will come back to haunt them in later life. Because the other thing, 
like I think the origin of sports, particularly team sports, probably started way back when as war games, as a way of competing. Because think of all sports games, it's always about defeating the opponent and strategizing and, and doing all these various things. So it's a way of keeping people in shape, so to speak, in preparation for the next uh, conflict with uh, an enemy of some type, but doing so in peacetime. And yet it's become ingrained into our culture. Um, again, I'm not prepared to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think it's maybe too ingrained and we're ignoring once again, uh, the downsides of it. And I think there are just other safer ways uh, for people to be physically fit and are also are other activities that can provide recreation, things like that. Having said that, I know some people, um, you know, love their sports and provided that they understand the pros and cons and they do a risk benefit analysis and they realize that what they're doing does have a chance of injury, injuries that come back to plague them for life, but they feel that the recreational part of it outweighs the risk and they're willing to do that. Then they're making an informed decision and it's a free country. And you know whether you want to eat chocolate cake or whether you want to participate in dangerous activities, it's your choice to do those things, as long as you're doing it in an informed way. But if you're doing it to get in shape, if you're doing it uh, for fitness, then there are so much safer ways of doing it. So anyways, um, this was a long one, and hopefully it's not too much of a word salad, once again, uh, please subscribe or share this video. Greatly appreciated. Uh, thank you if you made it this far. Bye for now.